We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 154, and more importantly, it's three years since we've started on this adventure, Scott. It's the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Welcome back, dear listener. Yes, three years today, 4th of July. Scott, it seems like only yesterday. It does seem like yesterday, does it? And I can honestly say that I'm a little bit trimmer than what I was three years ago. So, you know. You've you've gained information and lost weight. Exactly. So, yes, I I do feel pretty good about that. Mm. And 12th man, you've been with us nearly as long. Have I? Yes. Well, well done, chaps. I I, I want to congratulate you both on a... On a podcast, well done. Mm. And it would appear podcasting helps you to shed the kilos, Scott. Mm. Are you losing weight as well, talk me? No, I'm putting it on, if anything. (laughs) Right, okay. I'm pretty stable. So, Scott, you're the one who's benefited in that regard. Well, I think it's probably got more to do with my bike riding than anything else, but, you know, you never know. Mm. Dear listener, if you are listening to us for the first time, this is an Australian podcast which looks at news, politics, culture, ethics and the transformations taking place in our society we might well be cataloguing the demise of civilization, but we try to have fun while doing so. And we are particularly obsessed with the role of religion in our society. Religions, in my opinion, are dangerous and they are influential and far more so than people realise. And one of our major aims is to keep tabs of what they are up to. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, sit back and relax while we review the news of the last seven days. And Scott, I mean, we started off this podcast talking a lot about religion and secularism and, and we've broadened into, you know, news and politics. Mm. And if, if there's a topic that combines those things, all those elements together, it would be the development in the Senate with the Greens uh, Senator, Lee Rhiannon, putting forward uh, a proposal that the Lord's Prayer be abolished from the start of Senate sittings and replaced with something more appropriate for the non-religious community. So, so that's a development. I mean, we spoke about that at least three years ago. Absolutely. As, as so, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to see Senator Rannan has taken up our challenge to get rid of the prayers at the opening opening of the Senate. You know, I also thought to myself, you know, when we were running for the secular party, I thought to myself, if we won. What would we do when the prayers were on? I thought to myself I'd wait outside and then walk in once the prayers were over. Can you do that, though? Don't they, do they lock the doors? That no, that's, be... only, that's only when the vote's on. Ah, right. Doors. Okay. So before, yep. the, before a vote thing, you could just stand outside, wait for the prayers to be over, then you could go in after that. Yeah, yeah. yep. But, you know, it's my hat's off to Lee Rhiannon. Thank you very much for doing this, Senator Rhiannon. I don't forgive you for everything you've said in the past, but um, you know you have gone up in my estimation somewhat. Was she that bad? What she said in the past? Oh yeah, she is very much a left winger. Yeah, well, she's pretty hard left. I'm, in, I'm increasingly becoming one myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so alert, alerts the right and to alerts the left is okay, but you don't want to go too far to the right. Left. Mm. Okay, d- d- dear listener, just a refresher. Standing order number fifty titled Prayer and Acknowledgement of Country, uh, the President, on taking the chair each day, shall read the following prayer. Almighty God, we humbly beseech thee to vouchsafe thy special blessing upon this Parliament 
and that thou wouldst be pleased to direct and prosper the work of thy servants to the advancement of thy glory and to the true welfare of the people of Australia. And it then goes on with the Lord's Prayer. Like, that's pretty full-on religious language. It's hardcore. Mm. Uh, What uh, Senator Rhiannon has suggested is omitting the, um, the heading and replacing it with prayer or reflection and acknowledgement of country and omitting a lot of the words and replacing with an invitation to prayer or reflection. Senators, let us in silence pray or reflect upon our responsibilities to all people of Australia and to future generations. So I think that's fair enough. I mean, it's saying to the senators, you can pray if you want to, or you can reflect Mm. on your responsibilities. Well, I think that's very much um, like what you've suggested for the Anzac Day services where you said, you know, let us reflect or whatever it was. Let us pray or reflect reflect, is what I've asked for at Anzac Day ceremonies because language warning, dear listener, for this next few minutes and entire podcast for that matter, it gives me the shits when they are so assuming at Anzac Day ceremonies and... The cleric gets up and says, let us pray. And everyone has to be silent and it's assumed that we're all praying. And it would be just good manners to acknowledge that 30% of the people there are probably not praying and that you should just allow an acknowledgement that perhaps they just like to reflect. It's also extremely arrogant of religious people to assume that all those dead soldiers wanted wanted them to be remembered with any kind of religious ritual or... Um Goings on. Yeah. Look, Senator Rhiannon uh, disappoints me because she's not so much getting rid of or wants to get rid of one piece of superstitious um, mm. ritual as replace it with a whole bunch of superstitious rituals by the sounds of it. You think she wants to replace it with Well, a she bunch. wants to replace it with something that is in keeping with the various religions, including welcome to country. Isn't well, welcome to said? country is already in there. So, yes, an acknowledgement well, that's of another superstitious ritual. Indeed. Why have any superstitious rituals in our... Yeah, some people would say that's more than superstition, though. Some would talk about a legal ownership of the land, you know, arguably. So not necessarily yeah, superstition. I, I take your point, Paul, but the welcome to country doesn't offend me the way it does others. It, um, you know... It certainly doesn't have a supernatural element to it. It's, no. got, a racist, sure? it's got a potentially racist element to it. I believe it, it does have a supernatural element to right. it because they talk about uh, oh, the, the yeah, elders, past, past, present, present and future, future you know. Yeah. I mean, that's a definite supernatural reference in my book. Hmm. I don't think our, our Houses of Parliament should be um, <sighs> polluted with any kind of supernaturalism whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm with you on that. It's, I agree. That line could go out as well, but... First things first. And ultimately, they're not banning the saying of prayers by the Senate. They're simply no, saying... they're not. They're simply saying... They're getting rid of the Lord's Prayer. Exactly. And, I mean, if you want to pray the Lord's Prayer in your head as a senator, feel free to. But they're just acknowledging that you can pray or reflect. Did you guys see the response by Lyle Shelton? Yes. <laughs> Good old Lyle never disappoints, does he? You you were right the other week, you know. Here I was going to refuse him service if he walked into my shop. We'll talk about that later, by the way. And uh, he's done so much for this podcast over the years. You owe him. I do. 
You've got to admire the, just the schutzpah of these sort of people like Lyle Shelton. Um, so he's written in his own blog here, uh, the title of it is Green's Attack on Lord's Prayer, an Act of Cultural Vandalism. Mm. And he goes on, like ISIS blowing up archaeological sites on the Nineveh Plains, the Greens have laid explosive charges at the foot of one of the last remaining artefacts, reminding us of what has made us, our nation, great. With the help of Labor and some on the Senate crossbench, the Greens have established a Senate inquiry aimed at wiping from our collective consciousness the idea that God is God and politicians are not. It was always the goal of atheistic communism to dismantle two things, the natural family and Christianity. The Liberals and Australia's greatest Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies, warned in his 1946 Christianity and Communism radio broadcast that we must be vigilant against communism's war on both. The communists tried really hard to destroy both using guns, tanks and gulags. That was unpopular and people revolted after 70 bloody years. So communism reinvented itself as cultural Marxism and identity politics and began a long march through our institutions. Mm. The aims have not changed. The Greens and cultural elites are the new Politburo. You've got to uh, hand it to him. Talk about overblown rhetoric. But Lyle really has a... Um, I don't know. I think he needs psychological help myself. Because, <laughs> <laughs> don't you think? I think he's, uh, he's living in some kind of weird delusional bubble of his own. Absolutely he is. The, clear, the guy's clearly mental. I mean, like, you know... <laughs> No one, I think, sitting around this table mourns the loss of the old Soviet Marxist era. You know, it was brutal, it was cruel, it was terribly bloodthirsty. But to say that the Greens getting rid of the Lord's Prayer is akin to that is nonsense. I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing just bits and pieces. It's it's quite a colourful tirade. He goes on, he said... um, Uh, What is exclusive and archaic about appealing to God to deliver us from evil? Um, What is exclusive and archaic about asking It's it's exclusive because it's it's an appeal to a Christian God. Yes. Which lots of people don't Don't follow. believe exists. And it's archaic because it's a Christian God from 2,000 years ago. So that's what's exclusive and archaic about it. Kind of fits the definition, doesn't Mm. it? He goes on, given the bloodshed of the 20th century at the hands of atheistic, prayerless regimes, prayer may not be such a bad thing. Lars an idiot, isn't he? Uh, yeah. I mean, just the simple matter of striking out the Lord's Prayer and suggesting to senators they can pray or reflect on their responsibilities to Australians, and, and you get that. Yeah. And he honestly believes that, clearly. He honestly it's a, it's believes a, that it's the end of civilization as we know it if we yeah. just get rid of the Lord's Prayer. So that's Lyle. He's had his uh, rant. And so that's an inquiry now, some sort of parliamentary inquiry that will deal with that. And um, Do you want to um, place bets on whether it'll go anywhere? Hmm. Um, I don't know, because you've got Penny Wong down there. She's a committed Christian from the Labor side. You've got Matthias Corman, who's the leader of the government, and the Liberal side, he's a committed Christian. ScoMo. Well, ScoMo's in the other house. So I... 
Oh, it, I doubt it will get up. Do the Senate are the senators the only people who vote on it? Absolutely, they do. Yeah, they'd vote on it because that's their standing orders that they have okay. to change. So anyway, there's going to be a Senate Standing Committee on Procedure which will look at this issue, and it's possible for you, dear listener, to make a submission <coughs> to that Standing Committee. And on the website and in the show notes to this podcast is a link that you can click on, and that will be where you can lodge your submission. There's also a link from the National Secular Lobby. Brian Morris has made some comments as to the sorts of things that you might like to say in a submission and they'll be drafting up a submission that I guess you can copy and paste if you wish to at some stage. So so that's, uh, that's prayers in Parliament. And the other thing that's come up from National Secular Lobby was, remember the hoo-ha over the census question? Mm-hmm. So, dear listener, prior to the last census, the no religion, tick the box option, was at the bottom of the list. And in the most recent census, it went to the top. Lo and behold, there was a a huge increase in the number of people saying no religion. And the Bureau of Statistics apparently called for submissions on all of the census questions for people wanting changes. And that that expired on the 30th of June. Too late now if you want to lodge a submission. And on the question of the religious uh, statistics, we, of course, Scott, have mentioned that it would be great to have the New Zealand system. Mm -hmm. So in the New Zealand system, dear listener, it's in two parts. The first question is, uh, are you religious? Yes, no. And if no, then skip the next question and go on. And if yes, please nominate which religion you are. And that's why New Zealand's got a much higher non-religion yeah, the yeah, idea the is that yeah. when you phrase it in a two-part question like that, people will uh, probably s- indicate that they're less religious, having been asked, first of all, are you religious, rather than assuming you're religious and asking you to nominate which one. And it shows how mm. important it is to design such things very, very carefully. Mm. So I got an email here from um, Brian, and it seems that... Well, according to this email, at the time that they wrote it, there'd only been, I think, nine submissions or something like that to the Bureau of Statistics on the question. Really? Yeah. That's really low. And they were all from the ACL. <laughs> well, no. This, this I didn't is think the, the ACL got out of bed, though, did they? This, this is the thing, is that the Christian groups have missed the boat. So submissions have come from... <laughs> the twelfth man is jumping for joy, but there are submissions in there from the Atheist Foundation, the Rationalist Society, Plain Reason, National Secular Lobby, and all of them, I believe, are advocating for a two-part question. And a couple of individuals have done the same. And at the time of writing this email, it looked like there was only one submission by an individual to the contrary, or maybe another. It's a bit hard to tell. And I've since gone onto the site and it looks to me now that there might have been a total of 15 responses in by the required date and only one, it seems, is by a religious group and that's Anglicare. But otherwise, a good smattering of 
atheist, secular, rationalist groups have got in and, and not much from the Christian group. So we knew nothing about it, Scott. No, we didn't. But, you know, you and I aren't well, across it. You know, well, we should be. Like, yeah, I know we should be. We yeah. would know. Like, mm. honestly, dear listener, my Facebook feed is stupid in terms of <laughs> the stuff that's on there. And I'm scouring for this sort of thing. And I had no idea at the time that it was up. I've never heard Otherwise, of I would have put in something. So... Uh, yeah, I'm pleased go. the National Secular Lobby were onto it and they got something in. Yeah, mm. so um, so anyway, that will be interesting. So that would be mm. good to see if the census question is changed for the next census. Absolutely, it would be. Mm. Mm. So Christian groups will not be happy that they missed the boat on that one. Yeah, tough tits. It, it would. <laughs> what, what sort of percentage level would you guys be happy to see the non-religious um, sector of the population rise to 50 percent 80 60 would make me happy 60 when you say what would what would make me happy yeah. well i'd be 100%. happy if it reflected what i thought the true result the true makeup was and i guess i see religion as wasting a lot of people's time and mm. causing a lot of division so the less people who are religious the better so Indeed. if it was zero religious that would be even better mm. In an ideal world, not going to happen. But anyway, yeah. But it seems to no, be it's rising. It's not going to happen. We, we're stuck with them. Yeah, but, but it's rising. It is rising. Even it's in the bit. United States, which we all yeah. sort of see as the last bastion of of Christianity in the uh, Western world, yeah, it's mm. even the number of atheists there is rising in the census. Yeah, I mean the key is the general population is becoming increasingly non-religious, but our political leaders and judicial leaders and all the rest of them are becoming increasingly more religious. So <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter what the general population does if the leadership is doing something completely different. Look, it's the same story in politics, isn't it? The people who have the most to gain from political power are the most motivated to mm. get into politics. Well, these religious people, as we've said before, are just incredibly motivated. They, they will go to meetings, sign up and do stuff. And join parties and try to stack the numbers in the parties. Yeah, you can witness that in Victoria. The Mormons are running that place now. So, Indeed. And that's why you've got a lot of nutty, nutty stuff coming out of Victoria. Indeed. And there'll be more of it. And we'll talk more about that later. Mm. Now, uh, I've got a, uh, an article here from the New York Times. And in this one, it's talking about student enrolments at Harvard. We've previously mentioned the danger of quotas. Okay. And if you are trying to make your institution the, the, the makeup culturally of any group, uh, you know, match the makeup of the population, it's fraught with danger. And uh, what's happened in Harvard's case is there aren't quotas, but I'll read a bit from this article anyway. Basically, they've been discriminating against Asian students and statistics have come out which are quite compelling to prove that that's the case. So there was somebody from a school who was looking at the results and uh, she discovered that white students applying to Harvard in 2014 from her school were more than twice as likely to be admitted to the university as were her Asian-American students. Uh, a bit further on, Harvard Admissions Office consistently gave Asian-American applicants low personality ratings, 
the lowest assigned collectively to any racial group. The university selected its students on academic criteria. If the university, sorry, selected uh, students on academic criteria alone, the Asian share of Harvard student body would leap from 19% to 43%. But they had in there this subjective sort of personality evaluation, which allowed them to ignore the hard numbers of, uh, of hard criteria and to discriminate against Asians. Uh, it goes on in this article, Harvard evaluated applicants on the extent to which they possessed the following traits, likability, helpfulness, courage, kindness, positive personality, people like to be around them. The person is widely respected. Asian Americans who had the highest scores in both the academic and extracurricular ratings lagged far behind all other racial groups in the degree to which they received high ratings on the personality score. Hmm. And here's, how, here's the result of all that. Uh, they found that an otherwise identical applicant bearing an Asian-American male identity with a 25% chance of admission... Um, so that's an Asian-American... OK, so they're all identical, assuming identical in all other respects... If they were Asian-American, their chance of admission was 25%. If they were white, it was 32%. If they were Hispanic, it was 77%. And if they were black, it was 95%. Wow. Isn't that amazing? They really like (laughs) black people. (laughs) Do they? Isn't that incredible? That if all other criteria are exactly the same in terms of academic achievement, extracurricular activities, that... Based on race, it's incredible. I yeah, I... isn't affirmative action, which is what they call this kind of business, mm. isn't that supposed to redress uh, racial discrimination? Well, the thing is, though, it appears if, to be if, creating. If Asian Americans, for example, outperform other people, but in fact, say they're the say they're twenty percent of the population, but. On basis of performance, they should be 40% of the Harvard population. Harvard is saying, we don't want that many Asians. So we want a better mix of clientele. Mm. Therefore, we're going to reject uh, what would otherwise be suitable Asian applicants to get a cultural mix that they want. It's scary. Yeah, it really is. And it's totally in opposition to what their, you know, anti-racial ideals really should be. Mm. Here's what the law is, apparently. The Supreme Court ruled that it was legal to use race as a criterion in admissions in order to pursue the educational benefits of diversity, but it forbade the the imposition of racial quotas. So you can look at race to achieve diversity, but you can't have quotas. That's a Supreme Court said. Ooh, no, that doesn't make and you sense. can't have racism. So you can just have it in a loose, rough sort of way without a hard quota. It's really strange. That it? is extremely strange, actually. I think yeah. that, you know, if anyone from Harvard Admissions is listening to this podcast, I really think you should just go to the hard numbers of SAT scores Isn't because, it? you know, going through this softer personality... If that has been used the way this article suggests it's been used, then you shouldn't be doing that. Mm. And isn't um, university supposed to be a meritocracy? One would have thought so. Apparently not. 
There you go. US Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy has resigned. And he was the so-called swing voter, but in recent times pretty much fell on the conservative side. And if you're interested in legal issues in the US, dear listener, there is a podcast called Opening Arguments, which is really good. It is very good, isn't it? You've been listening to that one? Uh, I just started listening to it. Mm. It is pushed by um, one of the other podcasts that I listen to. Who uh, pushes that? Um, is it? Scathing Atheist. Right. And um, The Skeptocrats. Right. And also, da, 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 I can't think what they're called. They're the guys that record out of Chicago. Mm. You'll think, think of it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, good podcast and... After listening to their episode on it, their, the conclusion was that Roe vs. Wade, the sort of abortion, the famous abortion case in America, will probably survive, but will be watered down and just made more difficult for women to get abortions. And the one that they really felt was going to go was the ability for same-sex marriage to oh, same-sex marriage. They felt that that decision was going to be overturned, yes. So, What about... um, uh, See, this is why you don't want your legislature... This is why you don't want your judiciary making up too many of the laws. Exactly. (laughs) Because if if you've got got a situation like our parliament was dragged kicking and screaming to it, they're never going to revisit that issue again. No. So so what's going to happen in the US is... I mean, these judges are appointed for life. I mean, Kennedy is 80 and he's retiring. So He was appointed by Reagan, wasn't he? Yeah, he was the mm. last of the Reagan appointees. So when you've got a constitution which incorporates a kind of a Bill of Rights, uh, which allows judges to make decisions on these sorts of things, and you've got somebody like Trump is now able to put in place at least one conservative judge, and, and who knows if more retire over time, they're all getting on, so he might be able to put in two or three. Mm-hmm. That can effectively rule the roost on these issues for, for the decades. next... Yes, for mm. the next 20 years. Scott, when he got elected, we, we sort of said, well, how much damage can one man do? I mean, there are other institutions in place to put a check on him. And it's increasingly looking like he could have much more a long-term effect than what we might have... Exactly. And he's already been stacking the federal courts with mm. his own appointees. Mm. And now that he's stacking SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, with his own appointees, then that's the last check on his power, is the Supreme Court. Now, mm. if, if, they're all, if they're all Trump people, because you've got a woman on the Supreme Court who's, you know, 100 in the shade or something like that... Um, She's quite old. And um, Gin- is it Ginsburg? I, I, yeah, there's yeah. a Ginsburg. I'm not yeah. sure of their ages. Yeah, but she's apparently quite old. And they are concerned because she's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. They are concerned that she'll fall off the branch, fall off the twig too. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, if she goes in the next 12 months, then Trump could get two appointees or he could get three appointees in. One was replacing Gorsuch. This other one's replacing Kennedy, and then you could have re- replacing Ginsburg too. So anyway, these these judges have power to make decisions, mm. make law about crucial decisions like same-sex marriage and abortion and, and there'll be other issues. Do they make the law? Don't yes. They, don't they, 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 they the interpret law, yeah. the law? No, well, no, they get they, to make it. They get to make it. Because, because when you're at the Supreme Court, you don't have to follow 
previous judgments, you can just say, well, that previous decision that allowed same-sex marriage was wrong, the guy's got it wrong, and we're now deciding this is the law. And Seriously? Yes. And most judges would normally try to pay some respect to a previous Supreme Court decision and be very reluctant to, to change a long-standing decision. But these guys are, are rabid conservative evangelicals in charge of the Supreme Court, and they don't give a rat's. They will just follow their ideological conviction and they will overturn decisions and, and not care. So, I mean, quite often this court is split 5-4, markedly opposed on issues, and it just demonstrates, dear listener, the dangers of having uh, judges making significant laws. They should be interpreting the laws that the parliament makes. Mm -hmm. And it's just a really good example of why we should not have a Bill of Rights. Imagine if John Howard had got in charge in all those years and was able to stack the Supreme, you know, our High Court with an activist judges who then had power over Bill of Rights style of issues. I mean, mm -hmm. his influence is bad enough, but mm. it would have continued even more. So Absolutely. So the US system is an example of the dangers of a Bill of Rights and really it's uh, an example of, of this dominionism. Like mm. we mentioned before, the, the theory of dominionism is, is for the, the church groups, the religious groups to put people in charge of education, religion, family, business, government, arts and media. And, you know, I guess this is a branch of government to some extent and they've got control of it. It's they they've got it. They're there now. It's incredibly sad and dangerous for the United and States. And this Trump. is why we do not want to follow the example of the United States. No. Yeah. Yeah. And Trump appointed a conservative Christian as minister for um, minister the secretary, secretary of edu for education. Uh, education. Yes. Yeah. Divorce. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so he's working his way through the system. Mm. He's already started. Yeah. Look, frankly, I don't think. I don't think Trump really gives a toss. I, I think he's he's doing all this at the behest of his conservative Christian backers. Absolutely. I heard on a podcast I was listening to that had an American accent to it. I can't remember which one it was. They were saying amongst themselves that they felt that Trump was an atheist and that he was just doing what he was told. Wouldn't surprise me. Definitely yeah. the case. Yeah, yeah, he has no Christian conviction in him at all. It's just no, a case of number, numbers of people who will give him what he wants. Yeah. Right. Uh, Speaking of legal cases, here's a local one which was quite interesting. This is the case in the Human Rights Commission of BE versus Suncorp Group Limited. What we've got is Mr BE claimed he'd been discriminated against by Suncorp on the basis of his criminal record. So he applied for a job uh, with Suncorp and it turns out that... He's seven years previously had been convicted for accessing and possessing child pornography, was given a suspended sentence of 12 months imprisonment, was required to pay a fine of $5,000 and make a payment to charity of 5000 And shortly afterwards, he was... No, uh, seven years later, he was convicted of failing to comply with his reporting obligations and fined a further $1,000. So... When he initially applied for the job online, he did not disclose the extent of his criminal record. However, he, uh, he did subsequently, and Suncorp basically 
admitted that they refused a job offer to him because of his criminal conviction. And the question is, gentlemen, what's your feelings on that? Suncorp entitled to or not? I didn't have a problem with it because, you know, Suncorp would do a criminal background check on all their new employees. If you fail to disclose that you have a criminal record and they find it, then they're just going to knock you back for a job. So I didn't have a problem with it. Okay, let me give you more facts on that. When he initially applied for the job online, he did not fully disclose the extent of his criminal record. However, he disclosed his criminal record in advance of an interview for the job and prior to receiving a conditional offer of employment. He also provided consent to a criminal history check being carried out. Yeah, he provided consent for a criminal history check being carried out. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't, I didn't, I've got to admit I haven't read this. Um, I didn't know that he had already disclosed his criminal record. Mm-hmm. That mm, does make it a little bit different, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm probably falling down on the other side now. Yeah, I do think that because he had disclosed his criminal record, I do think that um, Suncorp should have sucked it up. Right. What yeah. if he had not disclosed, but then they said, um, great, um, we'd like to offer you a job. We will need a, you to pass a criminal record check. And um, can we have consent for that? And they then discovered that he... Yeah, then uh, if he had if lied... they then discovered that he um, had a criminal record? Yeah, with, then I don't think he should have got the job. Right. Because he hadn't disclosed it. He had said that, you know, that, that you received this job offer on the basis that you've got to pass this criminal record check. Mm-hmm. They went through it, found he had a criminal record, so they said no. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have a problem with that. See, prior to this podcast, dear listener, we were just discussing the upcoming topics and you, um, Velvet Club, said, oh, you know, you've got to find that Paul and Trevor have a different different opinion on this one. And um, I I, I suspect we're actually going to be in line on this one. Paul, what's your feeling on this? Well, look, my feeling is um, if a society expects people who are convicted of an offence to get on with their lives as law-abiding citizens they have to let them you know pay their debt to society and then damn well let them get on with their lives and i think uh the fact that he 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 was punished uh he should be allowed to be employed and earn a living um otherwise what 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 happens if he'd been convicted of financial fraud that would be different it would be different yeah yeah. If it was a conviction that was relevant to his role... To his employment. So if he was being employed in a childcare agency... Yes. Yeah, then he's clearly... Yeah, clearly that's he, right. he couldn't get that. But yeah. he was being employed to sell insurance on the phone or something, yes. wasn't he? Yes. In fact, he was going to be working from home yes. so, yeah, so, um, I mean, as an insurance consultant. Why, why wouldn't he be eligible for employment? Yeah. I think that sort of hounding people, and particularly because it's, a, it's an offence related to, uh, related to uh, you know, offences against children. Obviously, that's a hot-button issue, and for good reason. But, I mean, the man paid his debt. There was no indication that he was a, uh, an ongoing threat to society, and certainly in that role, mm. he wouldn't have presented a threat to anybody, I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought. He'd only be speaking to adults selling insurance. I think, I think the commission was, was correct. What do you think? I'm with you, my 12th man. When I first read the article, it was by Miranda Devine, mm. and she painted a picture 
that made you think, what the hell is going on here? This Human Rights Commission is out of control. But because she didn't fully explain that, in fact, he had been up front and said, I've got a criminal conviction prior to the um, job offer being made. So she sort of painted a picture of dishonesty in that regard, which wasn't as bad as, as she made out. And, and certainly just as you read her article, you thought, God, the world's gone crazy. But when you think about it, we've got courts who provide a punishment and it's not up to the rest of us to keep um, providing punishments on top of that. So, Yeah, I mean, um, if I'd read this whole thing, I probably would have come to a different conclusion. Yeah. But anyway, I didn't read it. I haven't done my homework this week, listeners. So, So, um, which, uh, while I think of it, I'm just going to revisit the issue of... Huckabee Sanders that we talked about. He went to a restaurant in Washington. I thought you were going to say wedding cakes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and she was refused service because the proprietor just looked at her and said, I oh, know you, you're that woman who speaks in the White House. Yeah, talks I'm, for Donald Trump. I'm not serving you. Yeah. And, I, and I was sympathetic to the restaurateur mm. last time we spoke, but I've changed my mind. Oh, really? Mm. So... Um, I, I think I would restrict that right to a situation where you've got a very personal involvement with the person that you're refusing. So uh, the so guy walks example. in and he's he's been having an affair with your wife, for example. Mm. You know, you can kick him out. If it's somebody personally known to you that's done you wrong, you should be able to refuse service. But on a wider scale, I think my argument that I've used before with you, 12th man, where I said, look, if you're a shopkeeper, part of the deal is you've got to be open for business for everybody and society's providing a lot of infrastructure for your benefit to run that business. Mm. As a result, you need to be um, serving whoever walks in the door and if you don't like that, don't own a shop. So I have come round to that view on that one. So I'm now in agreement with you guys and with <laughs> and with uh, with the twelfth with um, deep throat. Um, deep throat. There oh, we go. There you go. Anybody disagree out there? Send in your arguments. Yeah. <laughs> Send us a message on SpeakPipe on voicemail. But that's where I'm currently sitting on all those issues. Hmm. I mentioned to um, the, the, the Velvet Glove on the way over that uh, I read a case from out of the UK must have been about three years ago. And um, a man there was apprehended by the police. um, And I don't think it was exactly child pornography, but it was images of child pornography, but they they were drawings. They weren't photographs, you know what I mean? So we all know child pornography obviously is a not a victimless crime because children are abused and exploited to produce it. But this guy was in possession of drawings, you know, quite sort of... Um, you know, it was a form of art, if you like. And yet he was still punished for possessing prohibited material, which I thought was totally out of place. And it's a kind of thought policing, really, isn't it? I'd have to see the images to sort of... Really? Yeah. But if they're hand-drawn images or computer-generated images... Why does it make a difference? It makes a difference because there's no victim. If a person has some kind of sexual fetish inside their head, they do not seek to do anything to anybody else. It's all inside their head. And yet, you know, the fact that it was on his computer, I suppose, mm-hmm. allowed the authorities to detect him and then apprehend him and punish him right. for thinking 
prohibited thoughts? So, so creative works of child pornography are okay, provided they're not actual photographs. I would say yes. Mm. Not that I'm in favour of the material, by mm. any means, but I just think that when you allow a government to dictate what we're allowed to think about, then we're going down a very, very dark alley. Mm. Yeah, I reluctantly agree with you, Paul, there. It, um, it's objectionable material. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but it is computer-generated. That's right. If there's no victim, then yeah. it, as far as I'm concerned, there's no crime. No specific victim. I mean, if somebody says, let's go kill the Jews, there's no specific victim. No, but there's an intended victim in that case, isn't there? Yeah. Anyone that's Jewish, yeah. But if we've got a picture of some guy, you know, in an animated cartoon raping a young boy... Um, or girl. You know, there's, the, the victim is young boys or girls, even though none, a specific one isn't listed. No, but if the guy is only indulging in it in his own personal private space, in his own home, on his own computer, he's not seeking to no. act out any of his fantasies, then I say leave the poor bugger alone because, you know, if he's not hurting anyone, he's entitled to have his own thoughts. Yeah, but right. he could potentially he could, hurt someone. And he could Look, distribute that? We can all potentially hurt someone, Scott. We can all, absolutely every one of us, potentially hurt someone, but we don't. We control ourselves. And if somebody is in control of themselves, but they just indulge in some sort of weird fantasy in the privacy of their own home and they're not hurting anyone, I say leave them alone. So if somebody is a producer of such material and wants to distribute it, should they be allowed to? Uh, well, that, that may be a different question. Because you're mean, really talking about a guy who's generated his own pictures. I don't know where the images came from. Right. Okay. Well, you, so there's a potential difference. There. My recollection of the story was that he was, he was pers- prosecuted simply for having material that somebody in authority found distasteful. Okay, can I say to you there's a dis- distinction perhaps? If you've got a guy who's a, who's a talented artist mm. or animator mm. and creates his own stuff for himself mm. that never gets distributed versus a, a production animation house that decides to produce the stuff and distribute it, is, you're okay with the first, are you okay with the second? Oh, look, I don't know, but look, as you know... Because there's a strong argument that that sort of material could desensitise people to the evils of what they're doing or what they might, of what they're seeing. We are surrounded by stuff that desensitises us to all kinds of things. So so you're saying yes? No. So I'm saying we don't go around locking up every potential desensitised person. I know, but so you'd, you're okay with a production house producing that stuff and distributing it to other interested purchases? What I'm saying is I don't think individuals should be persecuted for having fantasies that are not in accord with the fantasies of the general population. Yeah, and I, I, could, I could possibly be with you on the guy who's on his own who's making this stuff out of his own head mm. and drawing it in his visual diary yeah. or, or whatever... 
and it never goes anywhere because it comes out of his own head and it goes into his own head. Well, there you go. But I, uh, second example, like if somebody else is producing this stuff for other people, I have a problem there. You know, maybe right. I, I, I'm not. Okay. I don't want to really spend too much time on this. Yeah, yeah, topic, I know. But, but you said the guy was found with the stuff, yeah. and so the question is, did he produce it himself or somebody know. else? Well, I, there's a crucial it's difference. Several there. years ago, I, think I don't recall yeah. the precise. I details. think there's a big difference depending. Anyway, wow. dear listener, send us your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Um, so we mentioned podcasts before, mm. and Scathing Atheist was one of them. And is, I, yeah. I used to listen I to I listen it. to them every week. Yeah. Right. Mm. I just find they laugh at stuff that I just don't think is funny, but maybe it's just me. But anyway, <clears throat> No Illusions with his diatribe is always very good. Absolutely. And yeah. I do have a link to his diatribe from 29th of June. And what he's describing is that he used to be a juggler and doing parties and entertaining people. And, you know, he, he could juggle, say, four balls and people would go, that's great. Well, can you do five? So he'd put in the effort, learn the routine, do five. People would say, that's great. Can you do six? And then, you know, again, knuckle down, do the practice, do six. And invariably people would say... Well, that's great, can you do seven? And no matter how many balls he actually could juggle, everybody would want more and provide a harder test. And he said that he has a... The analogy is when he's talking about Christianity and religion and people said to him, well, you can't really talk about religion and Christianity until you've read the Bible. So he read the Bible. And then they said, well you know, you can't just rely on the Bible. You've, you know, people don't just get their belief from books. You've got to look at what they're consuming in pop culture. So he started watching Christian movies and TV shows and taking in all this pop culture. And then people said, well, you know, you just can't rely on what these amateurs are doing. You've got to look at what uh, scholars and theologians are saying about it. So he started reading that as well. And, and the point of the whole thing was that no matter how much you read and understand about Christianity, people will still say... You don't know it. You mm. need to have examined this other thing. And, you know, I was thinking of Cam Riley with his sort of um, in-depth look at, at at the Jesus, the historical Jesus and the Christianity and the whole historical aspect of whether it's there was a Jesus or not. And I've at different times thought about really studying it and getting into it. And I've just, at the end of the day, I just think... It's like the grim fairy tales. You know, you, you could get into all sorts of detail about who, when they originally were written, how the stories changed over time and who the original authors might have been and when they were done. But at the end of the day, they're just fairy tales. And the Bible is very similar. It's just the people, some people say, well, actually, they're not fairy tales. They really are yeah. true. And they're just that leap of faith. And, uh, Anyway, Lower Illusions concludes with, um, it took me a long time to learn it, but if I've taken anything from the last five years, it's that when you take a deep dive into a shallow intellect, all you get is a headache. <laughs> he's, he's got a good turn of phrase, Lower Illusions. Didn't he also make the point that no matter how much you study up on the mm. topic, mm. you're not going to convince people who are, yes. you know, convinced of the reality of God and Jesus? Anyway. Yes. Because people basically believe what they want to believe, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think in Australia we've got John Dixon and a few other guys like that who take the whole 
historical, theological, scholarly approach and basically say, well, if you hadn't studied all the things, you couldn't possibly comment. Mm. And that's their sort of um, way of batting away a lot of the yeah. counter-arguments. So at the end of the day, somebody like No Illusion says, look, this is a story that talks about a talking donkey, so you just can't take it seriously if that's what it's mm. on about. So mm. were you aware of the talking donkey part of the Bible? Um, I wasn't fully aware of it until I looked it up myself. Mm. Yeah, I understand Num- where it's coming Numbers from. chapter 22, verse 28. <clears throat> and the Lord <clears throat> opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee, that thou hast smitten me these three times? It goes on, a big conversation between a talking donkey and Balaam and God. So that's in Numbers, chapter 22. Talking donkey. Yeah, it's in there, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, that that is straight out of Grimm's fairy tales because there were talking donkeys in... Uh, you remember the, the um, musicians of Bremen? No. There's a story about a bunch of animals... Right. ...who got together um, to play music or something. Right. Or, or they were in a house and... I've got this image in my mind of, like, you know, a donkey and then a dog stands on the donkey's back and the cat stands on the dog's back and a chicken, you know, and then they open the window and make a big noise to scare away whoever was coming to molest them or whatever. But I think there was a talking donkey in that. At least there was a talking chicken, dog and cat. You're very good on fairy tales. I remember you. We had a very good episode once about strange fairy tales and how how gruesome they were. Oh yeah, the Grimm's yeah. collected a bunch of really gruesome ones. Yeah, and the fairy tales were originally quite tough and rough yes, and ugly. Very, very ugly. And you got know, about sanitised over you know, time. About parents um, neglecting their children and and their children committing all these horrific acts to each other and then the parents sort of discovering their, all their children are dead and going and hanging themselves and stuff like that. It was very dark, some of them, mm, very dark. Very dark. So, um, Really? That sounds awful. Mm, mm. If I can find it, I'll tack it onto the episode, mm. uh, our discussion on that one. So, right, back to home. Uh, Pauline Hansen had some uh, things to say about her... <laughs> position regarding company tax cuts and I will just play a little bit of that right now. One Nation will not be supporting company tax cuts. So I haven't flip-flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no and I've stuck to it. That's not a flip-flop. It is a (laughs) flip-flop. I don't know what the hell she was thinking with that speech. You know, it, it... Beggar's belief that she got up there in the Senate and she said it. I mean, clearly she hadn't rehearsed it in her own mind because it made absolutely no sense whatsoever to say it wasn't a flip-flop when that's exactly what it was. And she bloody described the thing as a flip-flop. The woman's an idiot. I don't have a problem with a, with a politician flip-flopping. Like, well, neither do I. Like, you can no. change your mind. And, I mean, I just did it on this podcast um, yeah, exactly. 10 minutes ago. You'd be just... There's nothing wrong. Just admit, okay, I changed my yeah, mind why, and I, I changed my mind flip, again. flip-flop such political poison anyway? Because surely people should be capable of changing their minds, not just willing, but mm. capable of changing well, their minds. Well, Bill Shorten did it. He did it last week over the um, company yeah, tax cuts that were legislated. With a bit of twisting of his arm in mm. the um, shadow cabinet room. One of our listeners, Brett, uh, alerted me to the Pauline Hanson bit and also said that Apparently she, apparently she said about Bill Shorten that um, it was like women's intuition that she didn't trust him. 
Didn't like him. Did you hear that at all? <laughs> no, I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah. And listener Brett said, what would you say if an Indigenous elder said something like, my Indigenous ways of knowing tells me that I cannot trust Pauline Hanson? <laughs> well done, Brett. Mm, good point. Spot on. Yes, women's intuition, Pauline Hanson. Mm. Well, talk about, I mean, just your previous story about, what was it, diving into a... Deep diving, Deep diving into, gives you a headache. Into, into a shallow, shallow your intellect gives you. Yeah. A... Well, Pauline Hanson comes to mind immediately. Yeah. 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 <laughs> she gives a lot of people headaches, I think, because yeah. of her shallow intellect. Yeah. Change of topic. Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel, who staked her legacy on welcoming hundreds of thousands of migrants into Germany agreed on Monday to build border camps for asylum seekers and to tighten the border with Austria in a political deal to save her government. Now, there's a flip-flop, or a flip. A rather a big one. Absolutely, it was. And, you know, I think she's... I don't know whether... My better half hates Angela Merkel, so you know, I've got a few things that he said, if you like, but he did point out that... Um, he didn't feel that this was a um, entirely as a result of the threat to her government. Mm-hmm. He thought that she'd had the blinkers removed from her right. and that she suddenly saw what she'd done to Germany. I'm not so sanguine on that. I don't mm-hmm. think she understands what she's done to Germany. And I think that she's just walking through daisily dazed and confused with her eyes shut. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. We've never spoken to her, but I would just assume it's more about political survival. It's Absolutely, probably it is, the most yeah. likely. Yeah. Mm. I think that's right. You know, but um, it wouldn't surprise me either way, but I do, think it is, uh, I do think it's more about political survival than anything else. Yeah. So according to this article, it would establish camps called transit centres at points along the border. Newly arriving migrants would be screened in the centres and any determined to have already applied for asylum elsewhere in the European Union would be turned back. So that is quite a change from what they had before. So, Putting that into practice is another thing altogether because to turn people back, you have to have the approval of the country you're turning them back into. Well, if you're just stopping them on the border, you're saying... Like right on the border? Seems to be. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, I don't know. I think Europe's in for a world of hurt over the whole migration issue. You know... Well, on that topic, I mean, <clears throat> on this podcast we've talked about, don't follow the American example. Look at the civilised Scandinavian Nordic countries. Mm. And we do think of places like... Um, Sweden and Denmark and Finland have been civil places of really the high points of civilization in the world at the moment. Absolutely. At, at, yeah. yeah. But have, you lis- have you heard this, dear listener? <laughs> Sit down, honestly. This is in Denmark, and this is from the New York Times. So it's a legitimate thing that's happening. In Copenhagen, when... Rakaya Nassan gives birth in the coming days. She and her baby boy will enter a new category in the eyes of Danish law. Because she lives in a low-income immigrant neighbourhood described by the government as a ghetto, Rakaya will be what the Danish newspapers call a ghetto parent and the child will be a ghetto child. Starting at the age of one, ghetto children 
must be separated from their families for at least 25 hours a week, not including nap time, for mandatory instruction in Danish values, including the traditions of Christmas and Easter and Danish language. Non-compliance could result in a stoppage of welfare payments. Other Danish citizens are free to choose whether to enrol children in preschool up to the age of six. Denmark's government is introducing a new set of laws to regulate life in 25 low-income and heavily Muslim enclaves, saying that if families there do not willingly merge into the country's mainstream, they should be compelled. Wow. That's huge. It is huge. And the only objection I have to it is that it's not, it's not compulsory for all citizens of Denmark. Mm. It should be every single child that's born in that country should be compelled to go into Danish school. And it shouldn't be, you know, because you can hear it now, can't you? You can hear uh, Imam standing up saying this is Islamophobia. It's not Islamophobia. It is, well, it probably is. It is a government response to it. Because, let's face it, you know, it's not Christians that drive trucks into crowds of people down on the beach at Marseille. It's Islamists who do that. So I can understand why the Danish government has done this, but I do think they're going to regret not spreading it out through the whole population. A child at the age of one has to be separated from their families for 25 hours a week, not including nap time. Mm Mm-hmm. This, dear listener, this is from the New York Times. Like it's, it's pretty draconian, isn't it? That seems a lot. I think they should have... I agree with you, Scott. We say this all the time. When you make laws, you've got to make them irrespective of skin, skin colour. You exactly. can't give... Or ethnicity or religion, ancestry. Or, yeah. So what they had to do was create a system that was going to be effective to assimilate these children, but which everybody is going to have to do. Right. And mm-hmm. I really... I mean, a kid one year and one month old, 25 hours a week. No, that's 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 not right. That's gone too far. Mm. Well, I think that they should start it off at four hours a week or something like that for someone who's one year old or one month. Or six months of age. Well, no, they they started off at four hours a week at one and then they grow up, then they go up to six hours a week at two, then 12 hours a week, and they get up to 25 hours a week by the time they're six years of age. Yeah. And then they go off to a Danish school where they're yeah. taught in Danish and that's that sort of thing. I mean, so I agree in principle, forcing assimilation, but you've got to make it across the board. Mm. And that just seems way too, that seems just way too much mm. on a young kid. Um, Absolutely. I think 25 hours is a bit over the top. Imagine if Donald Trump came out with that policy. Oh, yeah, the world would go burko over that, wouldn't they? Yeah. And, Dear listener, you've probably heard of You've never heard of this story until you've tuned in to the Iron Fist Velvet Club podcast and we've given it to you. It's incredible. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the people in the sort of Scandinavian countries as, as being so civilised and just in this article there's a quote here from Annette Jacobson, 64, a retired pharmacist assistant, said, she so treasured Denmark's welfare system, which had provided her four children with free education and health care, that she felt a surge of gratitude every time she paid her taxes, which were more than 50% of her yearly income. Isn't that great? Mm. Same lady says, as for immigrants using the system, she said, there's always a cat door for someone to sneak in. Morally, they should be grateful to be allowed into our system, which was built over generations, she said. These are... 
These, these are, are very civilised people. Yeah, absolutely. Got a gripe, which yeah. uh, is understandable. Do you recall a, a piece is, of... Uh, there was an article about uh, maybe a year or so ago. It was, it was the result of some psychological research carried out in Danish juvenile detention centres by a psych- professional psychologist. And yeah, we did that story. You did the story. It was interesting, though, wasn't it? And it showed that the Danes are not acting out of irrational fear of foreigners so much as they, they see a very real problem of uh, lack of integration and they want to do something about it. Now, they're going about it pro- probably not in the right way now, but, but at least, you know, they're, they're basing their action on some genuine uh, problem in their society. Dear listener, how are you listening to this podcast did, did you stream it from the website or are you using an app? It would be a good idea to subscribe. That way you won't miss an episode. So some people just click on the link on Facebook. But go onto your app in your phone and subscribe. Uh, we've got a website. You can leave a comment, make a suggestion. We have a Facebook page. It would be nice if you would share uh, the page with some friends and comment on some articles. We need some iTunes reviews. Haven't had any in a long time. Haven't had a testimonial in a long time. Haven't had a voicemail message in a long time. (laughs) Haven't had a new patron in a long time. Guys, we've been at this for three years. Let's go to the the patrons. We haven't had a patron. um, Well, Bronwyn was actually uh, last month, early beginning of last month. But um, starting from the top, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John, Jason, Grant, Wayno, Ayame, Brett, Anonymous, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Craig, Jimmy, James, Jimmy, Spud, Kane, Bronwyn and the two Kens and the Ken in Sydney, mate. I will be down next week and I will be in contact with you. So thanks to the patrons. If you're listening to this podcast and you've maybe listened to 20 or 30 and you listen religiously, like you you go, great, I'll listen to this. You really should become a patron. If you sort of, you look at a list of topics and you go, oh, not this week, and oh, I'm sick of those guys, fair enough, don't be a patron. But if you're, look, if you're listening every week religiously, time to sign up and show the love. So looking forward to seeing you come onto the, to the, uh, the Patreon list. What um, sort of invocation should they have before listening, do you think? An invocation? An invocation uh, of some sort. Secular invocation? Just hope it's a good one is really all they need to say. And it always is if you've been listening <laughs> as well. Welcome to Cyber Country. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that's it, dear listener. Uh, it would be good if you could sign up or give us some feedback or do everything uh, that we've asked. That'd be great. Let me just see. One other, there was a message again. I think it was from, I think it was from Bronwyn and she was talking about MPs and conscience votes. Gentlemen, do you have an opinion on whether MPs should vote according to their conscience or whether they should be voting in accordance with the, you know, known opinion of their electorate? Say on the same-sex marriage debate, if your electorate had been polled and 70% were in favour of same-sex marriage, but you were against it, are you compelled to follow the whims of your electorate? What do you think? What's the obligations on a a member of parliament and voting? I think that they should be following the electorate more so than their own individual conscience. Mm -hmm. Um, 
because the conscience, it can be misleading. It can, um, you know, you look at Tony Abbott, for example, his seat had the highest yes vote in the same-sex marriage plebiscite. Now, he abstained from the vote in the end because he couldn't bring himself to vote for it. And um, even though it's at his sister's wedding, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think in that set of circumstances, I can understand people being very pissed off with him. But I do think he did the right thing by abstaining from the vote. When it comes to generally a conscience vote, I do think conscience votes are better than them all going in there and voting as a block because you get to see how they actually feel. And you also get um, Parliament working at its best too when you've got a when you've got a genuine division between yes and no. It's one of the reasons why I've even thought about in my own mind whether or not you should have a secret ballot on votes in Parliament. Um, oh, I'd like to know what a parliamentarian exactly. voting. Come yes. on, you need because to that know. would yeah. reduce accountability. Mm. It would, yes, and that's that's why that's why I've gone against. That's why I've, yeah. I've rejected that, but. It is one of the things I thought to myself, if you had a secret ballot, then, you've all, then you'd only have people voting with their conscience. Have you got yeah. any thoughts to talk, man? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be very surprised if very many elected representatives truly represent the, the, the wishes or the will of their electorate <clears throat> anyway. Except when it's convenient. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, but the, the other side of it is... You know, if they're honest about their personal platform, policy, opinion on a range of issues during the election campaign and then they are elected, then people should say, OK, we knew what that person stood for, we voted them in. And, um, you know, there is something that people refer to as leadership and mm. I think our elected representatives should be given some measure of freedom to act according to what they know to be or what they, they believe to be the, the best position or policy on a particular issue. Because a lot of the people doing the electing, you know, ordinary people mm. out there, are not always well informed about uh, a full range of issues. So I think you have to give them some leeway to, to, to vote according to how they believe things should fall. Yes, but it does. except if there's a party position on a topic, then I think people essentially vote for a party mm. and not for an individual. So if there's a party position, then you expect your member to vote according to the party lines. Mm. And if he's not, or if she, he or she is not going to, they need to say so before the election on, an, on a known issue that they're not going to vote along party lines. So what about... Issues like same-sex marriage. You know, on that, I reckon it's a party's responsibility to have a position. Like, but the parties were fairly split, weren't they? So, the, for, I don't think there should be conscience votes so much on issues like that. The party should just come up with a position and say, "Well, that's what we're doing." Do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would have preferred to have a conscience vote of all members of parliament rather than that national bloody plebiscite that we had. Mm. You know. What about the case of the Second World War, where the American public apparently, if, if I've read it correctly, were overwhelmingly against the United States getting involved in the Second World War? And yet, if they hadn't got involved, we know that the world would be a very different place now, and perhaps 
a much worse place. We don't really know. Oh, I think that what would have happened mm-hmm. is that you would have had the Nazi jackboot replaced by the communist jackboot. Yeah, but my so point saying, being that on, the United States government... Second World War. Yeah, and the president... So, so, so you're saying after the bombing of Pearl Harbor... Oh, well, the Pearl Harbor that, brought them into it. That, but that was 1941. The Germans right. invaded Poland in 1939. So they yeah. waited two full years yeah. before getting involved. Y- yeah, but after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the oh, American they public definitely was... got involved with the and, fighting Japan. Yeah. But what if yeah. they'd sort of said, well, Europe's not our problem and we're not going? Mm. And yet the United, United States government did take that executive decision to get involved and go and fight mm. against Hitler. Mm. So, yeah, I guess, are... I guess at times the government can say, well, you may think this is the case, but we believe this is the right answer mm. and vote us out next time if you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough, too. It depends on the topic, doesn't it? And when it comes to war, we've already said before, it's crazy that we've basically got the Prime Minister and, well, a handful of Cabinet members decide whether we go to war or not. Mm-hmm. And that should be a it vote really of the Parliament. Be, it really should be open to the Parliament to if decide. If you can't get a Parliament to agree on going to war, then you shouldn't be going to war. Mm-hmm. So that'd be on the top of the list in an iron fist velvet glove government where we'd be making it that you had to go to a vote of parliament for that one. Can I be minister for war? <laughs> <laughs> you can be, South Man. Yep, you can be. Oh, as usual, we've got a bunch of topics that we haven't got to, but um, I'm conscious of Meredith on the treadmill and <laughs> we've got to get her off. And <laughs> if we close off now, we're not that far over the hour limit. So, well... Three years down. Three years down. Three more to go. <laughs> 33 more to go. Who knows? Help us celebrate, dear listener. Leave us a comment or a message or become a patron. Show some support yeah. out there. Send a case Chip of in. champagne. It's part of the social contract. I mean, think of it like um, you're driving in the countryside and, you know, this farm properties and there's a little shed with avocados and an honesty box and they say, you know, you want a bag of avocados, it's five bucks or whatever. Well, you'd never dream of just grabbing the bunch of avocados and driving off, would you? Most no. people wouldn't, but no. some would. Yeah, but not listeners to the Iron Fist no, no, Club no, no, podcast. No. They're so, an altogether higher calibre of yeah. podcast listeners. Think of, the, think of our Patreon uh, account as, as, the, uh, as the honesty box for the avocado farm. Think of it that way. There we go. All right, dear listener, we'll be back for our fourth, the beginning of our fourth year next week. Until then, bye for now. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. To those of you that have been with us right from the beginning, a special thank you. Thank you. Bye now. See ya. Yeah. Iron fifth and a rubber glove. Real shit. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you 
go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon. And there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks. Thanks.